go ahead and open up in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 14. We're going to be in verses 13 through 36 this morning of Matthew chapter 14. And as you're turning there, I want to start with a story. I think part of it might actually be true, but parts of it may not be true. So take it for what you will. It's a great intro, isn't it? I've used this before, but I just think it's such a good illustration, and it really helps us to understand what's going on in this passage. And it's the story of a tightrope walker who stretched a line across Niagara Falls. And I do think that part of it was real. And, and walked across it several times. Now, the, the story, and this is where it may or may not be real, but after doing several trips across Niagara Falls on the tightrope walk, uh, the, the tightrope walker turned to the crowd and said, I, I have a wheelbarrow here. And I would like to carry somebody in the wheelbarrow across. You're, you're out. You're like, nope. <laughs> She's done. Not signing up for this one. And, and sure enough, the guy's looking for a volunteer, right? I don't think this is true because I can't imagine an insurance company in the world that would allow this. But this is the way my story goes. And, and he actually starts and he says, do you guys think that I can take somebody in the wheelbarrow and take them across the, the tightrope and across Niagara Falls? Everybody, yeah, yeah. Do you want to see me do it? Yeah, yeah. Who would like to get in the wheelbarrow? Chirp, chirp. <laughs> Not a sound. Everybody wants to see it. Nobody wants to do it. And the guy said, come on, I really, I, I can do this. You've seen what I did. I can do this. Nobody wants to get in the wheelbarrow. And then in the back, one hand goes up. And the tightrope walker says, you, sir, come forward. Are you willing to get in the wheelbarrow and let me take you across Niagara Falls? Yes. You willing to sign this thing saying you won't sue me if you die? Yes. Okay. So he puts him in the wheelbarrow, takes him across the line to the other side, turns around, comes back. The crowd goes wild. After the event, the press comes up and a news reporter asks the man, why, why, why did you do that? Did you know that he could make that trip? He said, yeah, you saw it. I saw it. We, we all saw that he could make that. And, and, and the press reporter, the news reporter said, but why, why were you willing to get in and nobody else was? And the man said, because I'm his manager. And I've seen him do this trick a hundred times. Over and over and over again, and he has never, ever dropped anybody. And I knew he could do it. It's an impossible ask. Will you get in the wheelbarrow? But this man was willing to do it because he knew something about the person holding the wheelbarrow. He trusted him. When we face impossible situations and impossible tasks, we are confronted with a very important question. Do we trust the person holding the wheelbarrow? And today in Matthew chapter 14, we're going to look at two situations where the disciples are presented with something impossible. One is an impossible task and the other an impossible situation. And we're going to watch and see what they do and what they learn about Jesus. 
Now, I need to set this up and give a little bit of context here. We're in a passage or a section of Matthew, rather, where there's a progressive rejection of Jesus Christ. The crowds are beginning at times. Sure, they follow him. They're really interested, but they're not really sure. The religious leaders, they're pretty sure they've already rejected Jesus. We looked last week at the beginning of chapter 14 where Herod has John the Baptist beheaded. This is kind of the the guy that paved the way for Jesus to come, also happened to be Jesus' cousin. So you have this ongoing and growing rejection. And in this center section of Matthew, Jesus increasingly distances himself from the crowds. He moves into solitary places. He increasingly spends important and intentional time with his disciples. He doesn't ignore the crowds. You'll see that in a moment. Even though he he tries to go off on his own, they tend to follow him. And, And he still talks to them and he teaches them. But it shows Matthew is really pointing out that he is intentionally working with his disciples, preparing them for what is to come. And as we go through this center section in Matthew, as we get to uh, chapter 16, there's going to be an important question that Jesus will ask his disciples. Who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? And I think Jesus is preparing them to answer that question. And I think he's preparing us to answer that question as well. Who do you say I am? Who is this Jesus? And let's start with the impossible task that he gives to the disciples. This comes up in verses 13 through 21. You know it as the feeding of the 5,000, a very popular text. There's a crowd that's gathered, and Jesus is miraculously able to feed them. But let's look at the details here, because I think it really helps us to understand what's going on. Starting in verse 13, it says, When Jesus heard what had happened, speaking of the death of John the Baptist, Herod's response to that, uh, he withdrew by boat to a, uh, privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. So Jesus, the Son of God, he's trying to get away for a while. It's not because he's scared. That's very obvious in the gospel. He's not scared. He is intentionally shifting a focus from teaching and preaching to the crowds to working with his disciples. He also wants to spend some intentional time in prayer, as we'll see in a moment. But the crowds do follow. And how does he respond? I don't have time for you. I'm really busy. I am the son of God, you know. No, that's not how he responds. It says he has compassion on them. I love that. Here he is. He has a plan. He's working that plan. They come with him and he still has compassion on them. And he still heals their sick. Miracles. Caring for them loving them, helping them. Let's go on to verses 15 to 17. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish. Here's the impossible Situation. They're in a remote place. Scholars believe it's probably the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Very hilly, very rocky, not many villages in the area. Certainly not big villages. And here, the crowd that they've attracted here, it says later on in verse 21, is about 5,000 men 
plus we assume women and children that were there as well. Could be as many as 10 to 12 to 15,000 people. This is a big crowd. And Jesus says, feed them. Because the disciples are like, it's getting late, dinner time, Jesus. Um, probably should send them on home. It's time to, you know, put this thing to rest. Time to call an end to this meeting. Send them on home. And Jesus just says, you give them something to eat. I wonder, like, I would love to have seen their face. Um, okay. And, and I love that they do this. Like, they, they, they must have gotten together and said, okay, we got to do something. What, what do you got? couple of loaves of bread and a couple fish. Five loaves, two fish, and that's it. But they bring it to Jesus. This is what we have. They know, not good enough, not going to cut it. No way that feeds this crowd, but it's all they have. Jesus has put them in an impossible impossible situation. He has asked them to do something impossible. And he knows it. And they know it. And yet here they are. Look at what happens. Verses 18 to 21. Bring them here to me. He said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up the twelve basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. It's a miracle. With just a tiny bit of food, what was barely enough for one person's lunch, he was able to feed close to 10,000 people. It's an absolute miracle. But look at how it happens. If we go back, hopefully this will work. Yep, verse 18 there. See where it says, bring them here to me. So the disciples have this food. It is not nearly enough. And Jesus says, you bring what you have to me. That's what makes all the difference in this story. That Jesus takes what the disciples have. They're not good enough on their own. They don't have enough on their own. They can't possibly just work a little bit harder and make this all work out. They must bring it to Jesus. And when they bring it to Jesus, something amazing happens. And notice, because some people will say, well, it's not really a miracle. You meet those people all the time. Miracles can't possibly happen. It's not really a miracle. What happened here, they'll say, is that the sharing of the disciples just motivated everybody to share. And they just all shared, and that's what happened here. Or, or really, it just they gave out what they had, and it just satisfied the people because they really realized that it was just enough. That is not what happens. Matthew takes those idea, ideas and blows them away. There is nothing about this text that allows us to understand anything other than this is a miracle. It says they all ate and were satisfied. If they got a crumb from a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish, they are not eating and are satisfied. One of the things we see about the crowds in Matthew is that they are seldom satisfied. And yet Matthew says they all ate and they are all satisfied. It also says that Jesus is the one who gives thanks. He gives the food back to the disciples. The disciples distribute it to the people. 
There is nothing about people sharing food here. Jesus takes a little bit, multiplies it miraculously, has the disciples distribute it, and the people eat and are satisfied. Not only that, you know, this idea of, well, it was just a little bit. Twelve basketfuls. Each basket was more than what they started with. Twelve of those are collected of the leftovers afterward. This is miraculous. In fact, I would say it is a miracle of creation. He is able to create something from nothing. You say, well, he had loaves and fish. There's a law in physics. I know you all know this, right? Because we memorize these things. Mass can neither be created nor destroyed. It's fundamental to the physics and the study of the universe. You cannot create stuff. It has to come from somewhere. You can change it to energy. You can change it back to mass. But it has to come from somewhere. Jesus took this little bit of stuff and he miraculously made it into a whole bunch more that was able to satisfy the people. Why? Because he's the son of God. Because he was there at creation when all the stuff took place in the first place. He's the one that created it all. He can call more of the food into existence, distribute distribute it, and satisfy the hunger of the crowd that is there. This is an absolute miracle. And why 12? Why 12 basketfuls afterward? How many disciples were there? 12. How many tribes in Israel? 12. I can't say because Matthew doesn't go into detail like exactly what Jesus is doing and why. If it just happened to be 12, I can't imagine it just happened to be 12. That number is way too significant. But I do think there's an undercurrent there that what Jesus provides is more than enough for his people. And I love that line that Jesus says, bring it here to me. Trust me with what you have, though you cannot face the impossibility, Jesus says, I can do so much more with what you have. There's some brilliant themes here that are being tied in, I think, by Jesus and by Matthew as he tells this. If you remember the story in the Old Testament, the Exodus, the Israelites are going through the wilderness and they have no food. And God tells Moses to pray and God brings manna from heaven, bread from heaven, rains down sticks to the ground, and they go around and they collect it. Sounds a little dusty and dirty to me, but it was enough for them to satisfy them. This miracle of God providing for his people. There's another account in 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 42 to 44, where the prophet Elisha, big deal in the Old Testament, and this prophet, he has a servant, and there's a similar situation with a crowd, and this man brings to the servant, or brings to Elisha 20 loaves of bread, and Elisha says, give it to the people. And there's, there's over 100 people there. And the guy's like, 20 loaves for 100? There's, there's not enough. Which is way more than they have in Matthew, right? He says, not enough. And a very similar thing has, they, uh, happens. They distribute the bread and they all eat and have some left over. The reason I'm telling you about that is that the, the people in the crowd and the old or the, the Jewish people that would have heard about this, and if you know the Old Testament, when you hear about this, you say, wow, Jesus is even greater. He is greater than what happened with Moses, greater than what happened to Elisha. Jesus is the greater king. There's a New Testament story I think is important to understand as well. 
Matthew chapter 4, verses 3 through 4, Jesus, after his baptism, goes into the wilderness. And he's tempted by Satan. And one of the things Satan tempts him with is he says, tell these stones to become bread. You're hungry. He's been fasting, going without food for 40 days. Really hungry. It's been a couple hours since I ate breakfast. I'm ready for lunch. 40 days. And Satan says, just turn these stones into bread. Could he do it? Absolutely. No problem. And what is so fascinating to me is that he doesn't. Jesus doesn't use his miracles to satisfy himself. He doesn't use his miracles to make his life easier. That's not the point. He uses it for the sake of others and to prove that he is the Savior. Jesus was not willing to use this power for himself. He satisfies and saves others, but he's willing to suffer and die for us as well. Why? Why did Jesus give the disciples this impossible task? Why start with that phrase, you give them something to eat, when he knew they couldn't do it? Think about what Jesus could have done. Could have just dismissed the crowds like the disciples said. Everybody go home, grab something to eat, no problem. He could have just miraculously produced more food, just have it poof, appear, or just said, boom, you're not hungry anymore and you're all satisfied. Miracle, no problem. But think about what Jesus did. He looked at his disciples. Remember, he's intentionally spending time with his disciples to teach them, and he said, you, you give them something to eat. And then think about how he does the miracles. The food is brought to him. Jesus breaks it. And who does he give the food to? He doesn't go to the crowd and give it out. He gives it to the disciples. And they go to the crowd and they give it out. I think there's some important lessons here. Jesus chooses to carry out his work through his followers. He chooses to work that way. He doesn't have to. Sometimes I think kingdom of heaven work a lot quicker if he didn't. But he chooses to work through us. He chooses to work through the disciples. The miracle here is clearly all because of Jesus. It was because of him that there was enough food. But the disciples were the ones that handed out. Jesus gets all the glory. And the disciples learn something about Jesus. He is able to face impossible tasks. He is able to supply for impossible needs. What they need to do is bring what they have to him and trust him. This task was only possible if they rely on Jesus. But he's not done with them yet. He's now going to send them into an impossible situation in verses 22 to 36. Let's look at this text. It starts by saying, Jesus, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night when he was alone, and we'll just stop in the middle of a sentence there, but hold on, don't read ahead. Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. That's an interesting phrase. He didn't just tell them. He didn't ask them. The Greek there is actually really strong. He made them do it. 
He gave them no option. Get in the boat and go. It was a command from their rabbi. They had to obey. It's a very forceful command. Why? Because Jesus has a plan. He wants those disciples in that boat on that night. And he knows exactly what's about to happen. Look at verses 24 to 25. Shortly, or we'll go back. uh, And the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. Think what the disciples went through. Many of these guys were seasoned fishermen. They knew how to deal with boats. They knew how to deal with storms. They knew how to deal with boats and storms on the Sea of Galilee. They were very familiar with this. Jesus sends them on ahead. It is just after dinner time. If we look at the timing, just before dinner time, the disciples come and say, hey, these people don't have any food to eat. I assume they ate during dinner time. It might have been getting dark by the time he sends them away or just after dark. Here, it says, verse 25, shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. How long had the disciples been on the lake? probably about six to seven to eight hours. To go what should have taken them no more than an hour. That's how bad the storm was. And these weren't a bunch of new guys that, you know, I worked at a camp and you'd see people just pull up and try to get in a rowboat or try to get in a kayak or something. You're like, oh no, we're going to have to go out and save them. You just knew it. Like they can't, that's not them. They know what they're doing. For six hours or more, they fight the wind and the waves. And Jesus waits. Now, Matthew doesn't say it. And maybe you can accuse me of reading too much in here. But the picture I get from Jesus or of Jesus from Scripture is that he knows all things. I believe Jesus absolutely knew what was going to happen to these men in that boat when he made them get in it and sent them out into the lake. He knew. Not only did he know, I believe he wanted it to happen. And he intentionally stayed behind and waited, knowing they were struggling. And then verses 25 to 27. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. It's interesting because there's a miracle here, right? There's actually two miracles. We'll see the second one in a bit. But the first miracle is Jesus is walking on water. This is another place where it's funny to see people that can't believe in miracles try to explain this away. Well, it was really just a shallow place, and it just looked like he was walking on water. He wasn't really. In a moment, you're going to see Peter get out of the boat and almost lose his life. And evidently, as a seasoned fisherman, he was able to drown in like two inches of water. There's another miracle. So, you know, there's no explaining this away. These were skilled fishermen. They knew what they were doing. They were terrified, had been fighting the wind and waves for hours and hours and hours, and then they see a figure just strolling across the lake. And you know, there's got to be a question that pops into their mind at that point. Who is that? Who is that? And they come up with an answer that in the moment makes sense to them. It has to be a ghost. Nothing else makes sense. 
And Jesus says, take courage. Why? Because they're terrified. These seasoned fishermen are terrified. Take courage. And then he says, it is I. You can read right over that pretty quickly. The phrase, it is I, is, is a fairly normal phrase in Greek. It's how you might respond to a question of, hey, who are you? Oh, it's me. But there's another interesting thing about it is that the Greek phrase translated here, it is I, was used to translate the Old Testament name of God, Yahweh, I am. Now, I can't tell you if that's specifically what Jesus is replying to or not. But I certainly think Matthew and the disciples would have read a little bit into it and said, really? Because remember, when he says that, he is walking on water. It's not just some guy out for a stroll. It is the very Son of God. Verses 28 through 30, things get interesting. And I said it's interesting in that first miracle there because Matthew doesn't emphasize the miracle at all. Oh yeah, he was walking on water. That's kind of the way Matthew treats it. He doesn't want us to focus on the miracle. Not that it's not important, but the focus is on the discipleship or the disciples and their relationship to Jesus. And so he continues looking at that. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. Wait, sorry, back up to verse 28. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began, or and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Peter hears that it's Jesus. And his response is, Jesus, if that's you, you call to me. This is not Peter going, I'm in, I'm jumping out. This is Peter saying, if it's you, you call to me and I will come. I think you really have to understand the Jewish nature of, of being a disciple here. Disciples were called to follow their rabbi no matter what. And Peter hears, that's my rabbi. And if he wants me out on the water, then I can do it. That's why he says, if you call to me, I will follow. Peter is called by Jesus and he gets out of the boat and begins to walk on the water. Sometimes people emphasize that Peter thought that he could do this. And he just was so confident in himself. I don't think that's true. I think the confidence that is shown here is a confidence in Jesus Christ. Peter said, if it's you on the water and you call me, I will be able to do this. But then something happens. In verse 30, there's a shift in his focus when he saw the wind and the waves. He takes his eyes off of Jesus his emphasis is no longer, if it's you, Jesus, I can be with you. Now it's, I'm out on wind and waves. And I'm in big trouble. And he's afraid. And he starts to sink. Verse 31, immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. Again, look at Matthew's focus. Jesus gets in the boat and immediately the wind and waves stop and Matthew just glosses over that like it's no big deal because the focus is on the disciples' response to Jesus. Peter just walked on water. 
The disciples aren't going, Peter, are you okay? That was amazing that you walked on water. That's not the focus. The focus is on who Jesus is and whether or not they're going to trust in him. And we see this between Peter and Jesus first. And Peter says, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? And that word doubt there is not like a lack of faith. It's, it's like a, a hesitancy. It's a pause. It's a struggle between two options. I just, I don't know how to make a decision. I'm, I'm, I'm in doubt. I'm struggling. He's saying, Peter, why? Why'd you get so distracted? Why'd you take your eyes off of me? And I don't think that the problem here was that Peter's faith was just too small. And I know Jesus says, you have little faith, but later on he's going to say in Matthew 17, 20, that the disciples have so little faith. But then he says this, truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, nothing will be impossible for you. So Jesus says, all it takes is a tiny, tiny little bit of faith. So what does he mean when he accuses them of having too little faith? The problem is not that Peter was not passionate enough, not fervent enough. It's not that he had to just work himself up and have more faith, just try harder to have faith. It's that he took his eyes off Jesus. That was the struggle. Faith is only as strong as what it's put in. Peter starts walking on the water with his faith, his eyes locked on Jesus. But then his faith shifts and he looks at the wind and the waves and he gets distracted and he doubts. David Platt makes a very helpful comment in his commentary on Matthew, exalting Jesus in Matthew. He says this, as long as your faith is in your circumstances or as long as your faith is focused on anyone or anything apart from Christ, then it won't matter how much faith you have. You will fall sooner or later. On the other hand, when your eyes are on Christ, the all-sovereign, gracious, loving, and merciful Savior and King of creation, you can always rest secure. Your faith will be constant because Christ is constant. Hebrews 12.2 tells us to be keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that lay before him endured the cross and despised the shame and has sat down at the right hand of God's throne. Instead of trying to be stronger, trust in Jesus' strength. When you are weak, he is strong. What do you do when you're faced with an impossible situation? Lock your eyes on your Savior, Jesus Christ. And don't let anything take them off. Because we're right. Peter was right. The situation was too much for him. But he wasn't alone in the situation. Jesus was there. And all of this leads up to the climax of this whole thing in verse 33. Truly you are the Son of God. Matthew ends this account. When they crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak and all who touched it were healed. I love the normalcy of that passage. This amazing thing just happened. This feeding of the 5,000, the walking on water, the calming of the storm. They show up at the other store and it's just right back to business as normal. And Jesus just keeps on being faithful. I believe Jesus sent the disciples onto that boat knowing that storm was going to come. 
and knowing that it was only in that storm that they would learn to trust him in a greater way. We're going to see as we progress through Matthew that Jesus is going to continue to withdraw to spend time with his disciples. To show things about himself that they need to know when he leaves them and goes back to heaven. Jesus sends us into impossible situations so that we will learn to trust him. Not trust our own strength, our own ability, not try just a little bit harder, but turn our eyes to him and trust in his presence and his power. Remember, all of this is leading up to a question, who do you say I am? We need to ask ourselves that each and every day. Who is Jesus? What am I learning about him? Am I keeping my eyes on him no matter what? You know, Jesus sent his disciples to this impossible task to feed 5,000 people. He sends this into this impossible situation. But there's another situation that's going to come up at the end of Matthew that we're pretty familiar with. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, he tells them this. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Friends, we face an impossible task. Go and make disciples. We're just a bunch of of little loaves and fish, and we're called to change the world. And guess what? We can't do it. But did you catch what Jesus said? I am with you. Bring your gifts and your abilities to Jesus. Bring your fears and your doubts and your hopes and your prayers and your dreams for your neighbors and your co-workers and your kids. Bring them to Jesus. And watch what he does with them. We're also called to an impossible situation. When he says go, he's sending them out into a world that will not accept them, will not accept what they say, and will ultimately, out of the 12 disciples, kill just about every single one of them. And now we're called to go and make disciples. And guess what, friends? The world hasn't changed all that much. People don't like hearing about Jesus anymore. They don't want to hear that there's a truth of the gospel. They don't want to hear that they're sinners but can be saved by grace. They don't want to hear it. And we are called to go out there in this impossible situation. We need to keep our eyes locked on Jesus Christ. Don't turn on the news too often and get caught up in the wind and the waves. Keep your eyes on Jesus Christ. He is with us. Yes, he sent us. Yes, he knows the difficulty of the situation. But he has never abandoned us. And he is here with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we learn to keep our eyes on Jesus. May we, through many times in our life, like the disciples, learn more about you, about your power, your faithfulness, your love, your grace, your mercy, your sovereign will for all humanity. May we be willing, as the song said, to go out on the water of this world and the difficulties of this life and the tragedies of human circumstances. And in those moments, may we keep our eyes on you.
And may we, because we're keeping our eyes on you, be better able to answer that question, who is Jesus? That we would be able to say, he's the one that kept me above the wind and waves. He's the one that caught me when I struggled and stumbled. He's the one that calmed the storm. He's the one that supplied needs and used me to do it. He's the one who died on the cross to save me from my sin. And may we be ready to reach out with that gospel to others and say he can save you too. As we call them to look at Jesus with us. In your name we pray. Amen.